Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details the voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner welcome to the autosport podcast i'm stuart codling this week on autosport.com we are marking the 50th anniversary of sauber with a major feature package sauber is a company with a hugely eclectic history beginning with peter sauber campaigning a self-built car in hill climbs and taking in a long partnership with mercedes a short ownership by bmw and of course the small matter of a le mans win as well as robert kubitz's victory in the 2008 canadian grand prix joining me to pay homage to some of Sauber's coolest cars are Autosport.com Plus editor James Newbold, Jake Boxall-Leg, our technical editor and the owner of the most voluminous water bottle in history, our F1 reporter Luke Smith. Um, Sauber's hill climb cars of the 1970s were clearly influenced by the McLaren and Porsche Can-Am cars of the time. Uh, I know there are one or two people who complain that we don't cover hill climbing enough in Autosport, but we're going to spin past those with your permission. Uh, And even the Group 5 BMW M1 that Sauber campaigned in the 80s, uh, onto Sauber's first properly iconic racing cars. And I suppose if you were a teenager and a racing fan in the 1980s, which uh, applies to me rather more than my younger colleagues, then the, the Sauber C9 in Kuros livery arguably defined Group C. Uh, you could also argue that when they took the Man Musk logos off and made the link with Mercedes more explicit, this was the time Sauber properly found its feet as a major international racing team so james what was it about the c9 that really elevated sauber properly as as an international racing team well you can't really talk about the history of sauber without discussing its period in sports cars obviously it's it's best known for its time in formula one but without the sports car chapter and the link up with mercedes really it's very unlikely that we would have actually seen sauber become a formula one team uh, at all and really as a result, we probably wouldn't be marking this with a 50th anniversary podcast. The C9 was um, a remarkable car, really. When I know we're going to talk a little later about the C11, and the C11 was statistically the more successful car when you look at its hit rate. Um, in 1990, the C11 only missed out on two wins, and that's because one of the races was the swan song for the C9. Um but the C9 really was the car that, that, that brought Mercedes back into motorsport. If you obviously know your Le Mans history, you'll know that um, Mercedes withdrew from motorsport after the tragic um, disaster at Le Mans in 1955 when Pierre Levesque's car ploughed into the crowd. And Mercedes was out of motorsport for, for 40 years, pretty much, after that. But it was 
Peter Sauber was was looking for a a partner to develop an engine. Um, he was inclined to to go with with Porsche, which was obviously the the dominant um, manufacturer at the start of the Group C period in 1983. Uh, the top ten were was filled with nine out of uh, out of ten uh, Porsche 956s, and the lone um, intruder in that was was a Sauber. Um, but as Peter Sauber well knew, he wasn't going to beat the Porsches by going with Porsche. So he was determined to, to seek an alternative partner. And, and so Mercedes properly came back into motorsport in 1986. The C9 that succeeded the C8 for 1987 was really the, the kind of the car that, that put Sauber uh, on the map. Um, in 1988, it was a it was a regular winner in the second half of the World Endurance Champ. Well, as it's now known today, the World Endurance Championship. Then it was the World Sports Car Championship. Um, it was never likely to win the championship that year because it had, had to miss the Le Mans 24 Hours. It withdrew because of a tyre um, problem for Klaus Niedzweitz. I don't know how you say his name uh, on the Mulsanne straight. I bet he doesn't either. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot of Zs going on there. Uh, there was a, a tyre failure um, on the Mulsan Strait. Back in those days, of course, it was um, there were no chicanes, um, so it was inherently a, a dangerous place to be having mechanical problems, um, and Mercedes withdrew. Um, but over the second half of the season, they won more races than Jaguar, and in 1989, the, the C9 really was the car to beat. And, of course, the real feather in its cap, of course, is that it won Le Mans that year, um, the third car of Stanley Dickens, Manuel Reuter and Joachim Mass um, failed in a, in a Sauber Mercedes 1-2. And really, I think, while the, the C11, as we'll go on to discuss, was a, a phenomenally successful car and moved the game on somewhat in, in Group C, it doesn't have a Le Mans win to its credit. And really, that's what ultimately is, is remembered in the annals of sports car history. And, and that's what makes the C9 a, one of the really great true sports cars and a great Sauber. And there are a number of sort of staffing changes at Sauber at that time, a number of key hires, people who would go on to play a, a, a big role in bringing some big names into motorsport in, in, in the driver arena. And how significant was it that Jochen Nierpasch and Max Velti joined Sauber around that time? Well, it was incredibly significant because it's those two that combine um to create the, um, the Sauber Mercedes junior team that launches the career of Carl Wendlinger, Heinz Harald Frentzen and somebody called Michael Schumacher. Um, they alternated in the second Mercedes in 1990. Um, the lead car was driven by Jean-Louis Lesser and Mauro Baldi um, and it was the, the so-called juniors that, that shared with, um, with Mass in, in the sister car. Um, Schumacher was due to make his debut at Silverstone, but he had a, a gearbox problem in an untimed practice session, pulled over uh, at Cops um, and received some assistance from his mechanics and subsequently was excluded because it was argued by the stewards that it had not taken place in the pit lane. So even right from those very early days in his career, Michael Schumacher was causing controversy. And it turned out that that was the only race that... Um, Mercedes didn't win in the 1990 World Sports Car Championship because down to one car, um, Schlesser and Baldi had an engine problem and Jaguar came through to win. Um, we should add that Le Mans was not part of the World Sports Car Championship in 1990, so you can't really hold it against the, the C11 that it didn't manage to win Le Mans in that year. Um, Jaguar saw off the challenge of Nissan um, to secure a 1-2 that year. But in 1991, um, the last year of the kind of big Group C regulations before the manufacturers effectively withdrew and left um, Peugeot and Toyota on, on their own, um, Mercedes developed a, a new car, the C291, which had a lot of engine problems. It was the first year, of course, of the new 3.5 litre engine regulations. Um, but when it came round to Le Mans, uh, the manufacturers were a little uneasy that the that the new cars would be able to to, to reach the finish. Um, Jaguar were in the same boat as well. They fielded one of their older cars. Um, Mercedes decided wisely um, to, to run the C11, and it had a three-lap lead 
um, coming to, to daybreak when it had a, a, a it threw a water belt, um, and so it, it just failed to, to win uh, a race that, that it had seemingly been destined to, to add to its collection. Um, the C11, yeah, ultimately it, it, it wiped the floor with everything in uh, in 1990. Um, just a, a shame, really, that it didn't get that that Le Mans win. But as we, as you know, it, it launched the career of, of Michael Schumacher, who uh, who eventually made his debut um, at Dijon, finished second um, with Mass behind the uh, the Schlesser Baldi car that went on to to wipe the floor with everything and win the championship. A very successful and very important car, not only in Sauber's history, but in motorsport history as well. So there were huge changes around Le Mans and sports car racing uh, at that time. And I suppose the, the imposition of chicanes on the Mulsan Strait in, in 1990 was the, the most significant change to the, the Le Mans circuit for quite a long time. And it was because those cars were getting so quick down the Mulsan that they, they felt the urge to, to put chicanes in. And in 1989, the, the, the C9 hit 400 kilometres an hour, which was a, a symbolic mark, uh, only surpassed by the WM, which, uh, if, if memory serves, was, was a deliberate attempt to go as quickly as possible. They even taped the air vents over, so that car was never going to uh, go much further after going, I think, 405 kilometres an hour. So the, the the C9 and the C11 were very different cars. The, the C11, obviously, a bit slower in a straight line, but it had so much more downforce than the C9. It was also a carbon fibre car, so there, there were a lot of changes going on in, in the Sauber philosophy behind the scenes, technically. Yeah, obviously, the um, C11 was a a much more advanced car, but I think it would probably do a disservice to the C9 to to make out that it was, um, you know, part of the old style Group C thinking. I, I spoke to Stanley Dickens for uh, a feature on the the one and only Sauber Le Mans win, and he said that it was a quite easy car to drive, which uh, was somewhat surprising given that um, you know cars of that era were renowned for being um, tough beasts to handle, um, particularly given that they were set up for straight line speed on the Mulsanne um, for quite obvious reasons. But particularly by comparison with the, the Porsche 962, which was the dominant car really of that period, only kind of surpassed by the Jaguars and the, the Mercedes around the same time, um, Stanley Dickens said that it was quite a, a heavy car, um, quite rough to drive, um, but the the C9 was was much lighter, and he said that it felt almost like a single seater by comparison. Um, obviously, he's he's going to be somewhat biased because when he uh, he turned out in the C11 in in 1991 with Jonathan Palmer and Kurt Team, it was uh, a not entirely successful um, return to the Mercedes roster for for Dickens. But if we're if we're going down the path of deciding what the coolest and most iconic Salbers of of the past 50 years are the C9 has to be um, right near the top of the list. It certainly uh, tops mine because it puts Sauber on the map. It makes them a credible partner to Mercedes to to enter Formula One in, in 1993. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it also for a, for a time made Stanley Dickens the only Swedish driver ever to win Le Mans, although um, Stefan Johansson um, took that record from him in, in 1997. But uh, yeah, that all obviously opened the gate to Mercedes joining Formula One, or did it? I remember as as a young autosport reader at the time, there was all this talk of Mercedes coming back to Formula One, Mercedes coming back to Formula One, and and then around 1982, it was uh, actually oh no, they aren't. And so when Sauber manifested themselves in Formula One a, a season later, it it was with a car that carried the logo's concept by Mercedes on the engine cover, and the the car itself actually looked pretty sophisticated um which is not surprising given that it had the hands of harvey postlethwaite and a, a young mark gascoigne on it but it, it was it was kind of a very bizarre time and i suppose we should mention the c12 as, as a little footnote in in this podcast because it was sauber's first formula one car but it was one of those strange f1 cars that was pretty competitive in qualifying vendlinger and um jj leto qualified in the top 10 for the 1993 season opener but then it just couldn't finish a, a race and i suppose you sort of have to ask yourself um, were, were they actually ready did did sauber sort of make a mistake in plowing on in 1993 i suppose you could easily just say that that 
sports cars was a, a closed avenue to them, given that uh, Max Mosley and Bernie Eccleston were doing their damnedest to kill sports car racing off. Yeah, it was definitely a sort of funny, I think, rookie season for, for the Sauber team in operation. And uh, I spoke to uh, Bert Zender as part of the features that we're running. And obviously he's been with Sauber right the way through this story, uh, has uh, served uh, 25 years as, as their team manager. And uh, he was saying that they went to that first race in South Africa, really sort of unsure of, of how they were going to do or what was going to happen. And they had a, the whole team was 27 people, which by modern F1 standards is just unthinkable really um but they sort of managed to get this i think sort of small plucky underdog sort of title uh, as uh, as a lot of the teams that we we do adore through this sports history uh, tend to have and uh, yeah to then score points on debut i think that really sort of like was a really a real mind-blowing moment for them that they've taken the success from sports cars and gone into obviously the, the tough world of f1 where you've got these these big teams that dominated the early 90s your williamses your mclarens uh, ferrari very strong then as well and uh, they were able to, to to just score some points and that was a really really promising start for them and uh, i think yeah the, the c12 obviously it was a a car that it it, it wasn't reliable as a lot of cars through that through that period uh, tended not to be um but it it was the i think the real starting point i think that for i think for salba there was a lot of a lot of pride as well um something else that bear spoke about is sort of taking the sort of swiss national identity to a much much more global level and he said it's sort of this idea of switzerland versus the world sometimes at salba and that it was this team, this very sort of small Swiss team going up against the, the the engineering might of teams from the UK, from Italy, from Germany, and really sort of taking them on and, and trying to, to fight on a global level in Formula One. So, yeah, I think I think the C12, it definitely, definitely needs a place when we come to talk about the coolest Saubers, um, simply for being the starting point for, for the whole Sauber F1 operation. Yeah, it was, it was a very nice looking car. And I suppose its tendency to go up in smoke might not have been uh, a problem with the car itself because the Ilmoyle engine at the time did have a tendency to blow up. It was only its sort of, I think, maybe the third third season of Ilmoyle's involvement in Formula One. And it was obviously impressive enough for Mercedes to having just kept a finger in the water, as it were, by having the concept by Mercedes-Benz logo on the engine cover to actually then invest in Ilmore and make it part of the empire. Uh, Sadly, after Ron Dennis had whistled Mercedes out from from under them and and several seasons of, shall we say, mid-grid mediocrity uh, follow, didn't it? Make weight drivers, people at the end of their career, pay drivers. Uh, and it was only at the, at the beginning of the 2000s that Sauber really became a properly competitive force almost out of nowhere with the the C20, which I, I think it, I, I vaguely remember the time. It was a long time ago, but I remember everyone being excited by the driver lineup and thinking, who is this Kimi Raikkonen and why have they hired him? But also the, the, the car itself was technically very interesting. It had had the twin keel. And Jake, you have interviewed the the, the, the senior designer behind it, Formula One's preeminent Bob Carrolgies lookalike, Sergio Rinland. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously, well, I interviewed him, um, I think it was about a year ago now, but um, went through his F1 career. And I did ask him where the twin kill suspension setup had come from. And one of the interesting things that he'd noted was the previous year's car, the C19, which was, it was an okay car. Um, Mika Salo scored all the points for it, uh, all six points. And Pedro Diniz didn't exactly cover himself in glory in his final F1 season. But it had a sort of interesting lower suspension setup where the um the front mounting point was was lower down and Sergio Rinland came in midway through 2000 looked at that remembered the, the when he was at Williams the FL, uh, FW11B that he'd worked on uh, under Patrick Head and all of those great Williams luminaries and he was like okay we can kind of use that to bring the overall center gravity overall center of gravity down um sauber spent a very very extensive time over the winter getting the weight of the c20 down and it they got it to a point where they could start to put the ballast in this twin keel suspension setup and that helped not only shave a bunch of weight off but it made sure that the front wheels were getting the right level of load and when Nick Heifeld and Kimi Räikkönen got behind the wheel. First time, it was uh, Fiorano over the winter. Heifeld got in the car and he found it 
incredibly benign car to drive and he really enjoyed it. And he said, having been extricated from Prost, which was a bit of a dumpster fire by that point, in all honesty, they were in the middle of a an acrimonious divorce between Prost and Peugeot and the car was really quite awful, which I've written a feature about in the past, I hasten to add. Um, he said that car was incredibly unpredictable and he got in the Sauber and it was so good to drive but he was still a little bit like okay we don't really know where we are and then um the c20 got to the first race they qualified sort of midfield heidfeld and raikkonen which was sort of to be expected but raikkonen he fell down the order a little bit but once he'd sort of worked out okay this is what formula one racing is um made some good moves through the pack uh, Heidfeld was was overtaken by Olivier Panis under yellow flags when uh, Enrique Bernaldi shunted in the 2001 Australian Grand Prix. So by the end of the race, that had got Heidfeld up to fourth. So the C20 it had this innovative twin keel suspension arrangement. It made the car very, very easy to drive. They'd hacked a bunch of weight out of the car as well. Those are sort of the key factors behind why the car was so successful and sort of having a very strong aero basis as well, um, helped them eventually get fourth that year. Yeah. From from memory, a, a, although that became a thing that everyone had to have in various more extreme forms, to begin with, a, a lot of engineers and other teams were saying that that car, firstly, they, they must have gone to an awful lot of work to make the, the, the twin keels rigid and and strong enough to take the the weight and the loads but also there was there was some sort of speculation about whether you'd have to there would be some sort of inherent compromise in suspension geometry caused by having the in fact the nose of the car above the the, the bottom wishbone uh, as uh Rindlin told me he said the, the suspension layout was generally a sort of like quite conventional one um but today you see a suspension setup that's incredibly far removed from what it was even back in 2001 um but they didn't have to do a whole lot to it um it was just taking what they already had making it as you say stronger uh and able to deal with the loads that um the the attachment points get um and what it did do aerodynamically as well was um it picked up the sort of the dirty air produced by the front wing and ensured that it had a clear channel to go down and was directed properly so that it wasn't coming in and corrupting the flow under the floor so they got around the sort of like vehicle dynamic kinematic requirements that that sort of twin keel suspension setup brought in um but it was predominantly an aero influence choice that eventually sort of became i wouldn't say the blueprint for aerodynamic developed suspension components but it was one of the sort of key defining factors of the early 2000s it was pretty rag- radical and like i remember other people at first poo-pooing it and then rushing to copy it as as is often the way uh, in formula one obviously mclaren then swooped McLaren and Mercedes swooped for Kimi Raikkonen. Sauber got an awful lot of money by way of recompense uh, and were able to start developing their own wind tunnel. And when um, BMW offered to buy Williams a few years later and Frank and Patrick uh, told them to do one, uh, BMW bought Sauber instead and had kind of a, almost like a ready-cooked uh, team that, that, that where all the pieces were starting to come together again, even though they'd sort of slipped into the mid-grid again, they they were kind of ready just with a little bit more investment to uh to to take things forward and and it's pretty amazing that within 3 years of of, of BMW buying into the team they they were actually in a position where they won a race now uh, in the Jake style i will plug a piece that I, i've written with inter- with an interview with um robert kubitzer among other people uh, which will be going on autosport.com this week about the the 2008 championship challenge that never was and uh, let, let's talk about the f108 uh, car which could could be one of the coolest sabers ever and it was certainly a car from that era of crazy aerodynamic bits and pieces where no surface of of the car went unadorned without some sort of horn or or proboscis or other um 
Jake, what, what, what's your understanding of that sort of time with all the, the, the various bits and pieces and aerodynamic addenda that were going on the cars at that point? Is it, is it, are they the ugliest cars in Formula One history or was, was that a point where, that kind of we, we'll never see those days again? It's weird because we look at that time. Back then, we looked at the 2009 Aero and we were told it was all of this dirty air that's produce it, that Formula One cars are producing and it's making it so difficult to overtake. So these 2009 regulations come in and then we're told that we need more top speed. So they roll back those restrictions on aerodynamic appendages and you see the current rule set and we've got these absolutely insane barge boards where no part is left unadorned by uh, horns or proboscis, I, you say. <laughs> Who so, said that? I can't think. So what it is, is we are on a continuously perpetu- perpetuating cycle where we have an, a form... I, I, this might be a, a subject of conversation for another day, but we have these rules and people are disaffected by them. So those are changed for something else and then someone else is disaffected by those and we just end up going back and forth between different rule sets so i wouldn't cast outside the bounds of possibility that i don't know in 20 years time people go oh i really like those cars and we end up going back to them at some point we we might just and i suppose a, another thing we should bring in in terms of if we drag ourselves back to 2008 and the time of credit crunches and recessions and uh, hang on a minute that's 2020 isn't it um we we go back to to that sauber it, it was an impressive looking car um robert kubitza said that at the beginning of the season they were absolutely nowhere with it and he now feels that it was missing certain vital parts which were then put on at the the, the subsequent tests but even he wasn't expecting to be qualifying uh, as as far up the grid as he did in australia and he went on throughout that season to pick up pretty decent results he led the monaco grand prix um he he won a race and then bmw abruptly decided that that was it they were going to start focusing on on 2009 he also says that they tested a bunch of parts on the car which would have improved it uh but which they decided to hold back uh for the 2009 car history records that not being a great idea um so Luke, what, what what do you think about Robert Kubitz's 2008? Do you, do you reckon that car could have taken him all the way? What was he right in saying they should have carried on developing it? And or what was it at the end of the development road, as Mario Tyson claimed? I suppose we'll never know. But Robert said it wasn't. Uh, and most people, I think, you speak to from Saba um, at that time would agree with Robert's uh, with uh, Robert's summation on that. That no, the car wasn't at the end of the development road. That there was a lot more they could do with it. Um, and uh, yeah, you look at the the championship from that season, and it is always remembered for that amazing battle between uh, Felipe Massa and Lewis Hamilton that obviously was settled on the the final corner of the final lap at the final race of the season. But there is always this sort of wondering about what could have been like. Could there have been a third driver and a third team involved in that? And could it and should it have been Robert Kubica? And you look through the season and midway through the year, he was right in the thick of the title fight. He w- he was really fighting up there with Hamilton with Massa. Uh, with Kimi Raikkonen as well at that point but then at BMW they were sort of looking to the future and they knew that we had the the curse regulations coming in um for the for the 2009 season and for them that was a really sort of big thing they wanted to, to get on board with obviously it was uh, f one sort of big first step towards uh, uh being more efficient and uh sort of thinking a bit more about these sort of hybrid uh, power solutions and uh the the team they were sort of uh BMW they were very very keen to be the pace setter and be the benchmark when it came to curse so they had all these plans for the uh, air cooled curse system that wanted to go ahead with and uh, they decided to shelve 2008 and really focus on that and go for being the team to beat in 2009 and that ultimately led to Robert's sort of uh, season unravelling from the sort of midpoint of the year onwards Um, after his win in Canada he only finished on the podium three more times but that was still enough to keep him in title contention. I think until uh, three rounds to go is when he was finally sort of eliminated, uh, eliminated from it mathematically. So he did have a real shot at it, and it's kind of a shame that they kind of just accepted, like, okay, we're comfortably the third fastest team right now, so let's just sort of 
take that step back and um, and and just accept it. It was it was a real shame because I think it could have been a really fascinating fight to put in that third team, that third driver, um, along with Hamilton and Massa. And unfortunately, that is sort of the high point for not only Robert, but I think the whole sort of BMW Sauber um, collaboration. Because uh, as you rightly said to begin with, it was amazing that they came in and so early on were able to be so competitive and basically go from entering as, as a factory operation with uh, with Sauber to within three seasons being able to win races and being in the fight for a championship and it's just a, yeah it's just unfortunate that we never quite got to see it fully fulfilled and that they could have maybe been uh, in the fight at the very end of the 2008 season but I mean definitely the the, the F108 I think that has to be remembered as as one of the coolest Salbers um, because it was, yeah, it was the real, real high point. I mean, we saw Salber, this little team that started from Switzerland uh, in 1993 in F1 with 27 people fighting for potentially a world championship. It's an incredible story and just a real shame that I don't think we ever got to see uh, the full fruits of that come together. Well, it's quite funny about the the Kurs as well um, because it, it makes it sound like even more of a wasted opportunity when BMW brought the curse in curse system in for 2009. Um, as Luke said, they did so because it was an incredibly useful corporate marketing tool for BMW to say, "Look, we're pioneering this hybrid technology that, in current automotive parlance, is is huge." And they did the first couple of races with it, and it was the car was not good. It was unbalanced. Um, the aero itself, of the car was quite rudimentary compared to perhaps the Braun and the Red Bull for example but the Kurs was not helping the distribution either and so Heidfeld said to the team can I try doing this uh, practice uh, Malaysia without it and they said yeah okay and so they took it off and the car he said felt so much better it felt it felt balanced it felt right it felt quicker and he said okay can I can we can we leave it off the car just for good and they were like no because we need it for for our marketing they were knowingly making the car worse purely as a marketing stunt which i find absolutely bizarre and presumably explains why bmw eventually walked out at the end of the year but it's, it's a bizarre story it's tragic really isn't it i mean when you look at 2008 um the constructors tally that that bmw salvo accrued was i, I look back on uh, on our statistics website forex and they scored more points than ferrari managed as runners up in 1998 um you know it's by far and away their most successful season in formula one as we know bmw withdrew at the end of 2009 and sauber after a a brief period where it was supposedly going to be the quad back f1 team and we weren't sure whether it was going to be on the grid at all um and now, obviously, in its current guise as a effectively a Ferrari B team as as Alfa Romeo, it's come back somewhat from the nadir of the 2014 season when Adrian Sutil and Esteban Gutierrez didn't score any points at all. Um, but yeah, for it to have reached that 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 point where it was really capable of, of taking it to the best teams of of the time, for it to effectively just willingly allow that chance to slip through its fingers to stick to a a four-year plan that had been set down by the board um, really was really was a mistake, and it's such a shame that um, we were robbed of that opportunity to see the team, if it had continued developing, what that title battle, which is as it is remembered as one of the best of um, Formula One histories, one of the best of recent Formula One history, if not all time, could have been with a third constructor. Robert says uh, in in the feature that we'll be publishing this week that it it was very target driven the whole BMW operation and they laid out a roadmap of in the, the the first year they wanted to score points in the second year to score podiums and and the third year uh, the explicit goal was to win a race um, on merit not uh, by inheriting it but actually winning a race by competitive merit and and they achieved that and 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 Robert's contention is that 
they then needed another goal after that. They should have said, okay, right, well, we've won that. Now we can go for championships. But because the competitive roadmap said championships in 2009, they, they, they stuck to that and, and throttled off. I suppose we should also, you know, before we move on from the F1WA, talk a little bit more about the, the the technical changes that were brought in at the beginning of that season, the, the imposition of the single ECU, which uh, Robert says could have played a part in the, uh, the their success because a lot of other teams were finding that their engines were too peaky in their power delivery and in previous years they'd been able to tame that with traction control but because a single ECU made that impossible um, all, all of a sudden an engine that was tractable and maybe didn't have that enormous hit of top end power but was smooth and drivable and enabled the, the, the driver to, to put what it had down properly and not stress the tyres became a thing yeah absolutely um i remember it being quite a controversial thing the standard ecu because it was uh produced by mclaren which it is still to this day and everyone assumed that it would give mclaren an advantage um but yeah as you say if it's just a generally quite a drivable engine and you're not hind nice not say hindered as such but the other engines aren't masked by uh, the use of traction control and other trick electronics and things like that the actual performance of the engine is very clearly visible and if bmw had something that was in the hands of kibitza and heidfeld you know a relatively easy cast drive then of course they're going to benefit from that um i do remember ferrari at the time perhaps lost a little bit because of that because of that traction control uh, loss over the off season, um, and ultimately uh, the standard ECU is something that other series have gravitated towards as well. So Formula One has sort of pioneered on that front. I remember the McLaren uh, the, the, certainly at the beginning of the year. I, I went to the Malaysian Grand Prix in '08 and standing at the uh, the the left hander where it goes uphill, and it was just spinning up its back tyres every time, which which can't have been good for them, and the the. BMW Sauber certainly wasn't, so that they were certainly losing there. Obviously, McLaren also had the issue of um, having the FIA round to check their homework to make sure there was no Ferrari DNA in in the car, because that that was a season of of peak rancor between uh, Ferrari and McLaren. So a, a sentence we should probably not get Nick Heidfeld to utter. Really was an open goal for BMW, so it, it, it was a shame that, that that they missed it. So I, I suppose we should we should proceed to probably the, the, our, our final uh, car in in the list and and probably the most successful Sauber of of recent years, the the, the C thirty one. You you could argue that it was Sauber's last properly competitive F one car, apart from a couple of flashes of genius with Nico Hulkenberg in twenty thirteen. Um, in twenty twenty twelve, obviously the car was as Ugly, it had fallen out of the ugly tree and hit hit every branch on the way down. But you could say that of every car on the grid. But you know they they had a decent driver combination, Perez and Kobayashi, um, best combined qualifying ever. Was it um, Kobayashi P two, Perez P five uh, in, in, in on at Spa Francorchamps? Proper driver circuit where people in a good car thrive. I mean, obviously rain disrupted practice so you could say well maybe Sauber were more agile but um, where, where do we view the C31 in, in terms of the pantheon of, of Saubers? Uh I think it what, what we must take into account is that in context of the 2012 season where the Pirelli was an incredibly capricious tyre and in some in some weekends it was incredibly beneficial to some teams and then you'd go to a different race and it was completely different and the teams that were doing well at one track would struggle. But Sauber was, it, it kind of had like a, a relatively sort of shallow performance thing, but with very high high peaks. So it was always in and around the lower reaches of the points. But you would have those weekends where, so for example, Malaysia, where Perez basically was one slide off the road away from passing Alonso and perhaps winning a race. Um he did the same at Canada and that year he became, that sort of cemented his reputation as a bit of a tyre whisperer. And then, of course, you had Kobayashi's third place at Japan, which uh, mirrored Aguri Suzuki's result in, uh, is it 89, 1990, 89? Uh, 89, I think, off the top 80, of my head. 89, uh, in the LaRue. So that was, you know, those were phenomenal results. Um, so the car was the car was fundamentally quick. Um this was in 2012 when 
teams for experimenting with, you know, Coanda exhausts and that kind of thing. And uh, McLaren and Red Bull had managed to sort of navigate the the regulation discussion into that direction so that they began the season with uh, with an advantage. But Sauber got on top of it sort of pretty quickly and were able to create these sort of Red Bull style side pods that sort of swept down and so they were able to pop the exhaust gases out and it went nicely over the floor and gave them a good hit of rear end downforce. So it was yeah, fundamentally a good car and although it was quite a it was an ugly one and the paint job looked like half of it had been dipped in tar at a slightly weird angle. Uh it was fundamentally a good one. It was the use of primer grey, I think, was uh, always the giveaway. Um, Luke, in your discussions with Bayat Zender, did did you dare broach the topic of Malaysia 2012 and whether there was a call from Ferrari to not attack Alonso properly? Uh, we didn't actually talk about that, no. But that is uh, that is the sort of the conspiracy theory that is is banded about, and I think it is uh, it's an interesting debate, definitely, because yeah, that was that was the day that I think. I mean, that was, I mean, 2012, it was just a, a bonkers season. I mean, it was a season that gave us, what was it, seven different winners in, in the first seven races. Pastor Maldonado won a race. Like, it, it was it was unbelievable. Yeah, on but merit. I think, on, on merit, on merit, on merit. And it was it was a, just a strange, uh, strange year. But I think if you had thrown in, um, like, Sauber and Perez winning a race at the second round, that would have, that would have made it even madder than we remember it. And as JBL said, like, once he was one slide away from potentially scoring what would have been a remarkable race win because not only was this a team that okay it's it's a midfield team absolutely that that in itself is impressive to win but a team that had been two years ago it didn't have an f1 entry like when bmw pulled the plug and salber peter salber bought back the team the fia said um fine but you're you're like you're off the list at the moment because we've got these four new teams coming in um obviously usf1 never materialized and uh, that opened the door for Salba to come back in, and it was it was a team that they'd had to they'd had to lay off people, they'd have to had to get rid of staff, but they kept fighting and they kept going. So to come so close to winning a race, I mean that again, I think really sort of does lend to the great resolve and great strength that Salba has as an operation that they were able to to produce such a brilliant result, even finishing second, but then repeat it through the season. Like again, as, as JBL said, like to score those podiums as they did on merit, it was a real, real impressive display. And I think it, it just showed that, yeah, it was a team that had been, had been knocked down hard when BMW pulled the plug. And there were questions about, would it survive with the Sauber team uh, name remain in F1? And not only did it remain, but it came so close to winning a race. It proved that it was able to, uh, to fight properly, as part of the F1 sort of establishment. And that year, they I mean, they were fighting Mercedes for fifth place in the Constructors' Championship right until the final round, which when you think about, you go back to the beginning of that sort of Sauber-Mercedes relationship and you look at it in the context now and what Mercedes have gone on to achieve. I think to think about that, it just shows that, yeah, that was a real, real big year for Sauber, I think, to, to, to have done it. And I'd agree with James's point that I think it is sort of is the, the high point of recent Sauber history as well, because I think once the, the, the V6 hybrids came in, I think that was a, a big financial blow to Sauber. And I think that meant that it was difficult to make ends meet. Obviously, much better days now, thanks to the Alfa Romeo rebrand and the, the, the takeover from Longbow. But I think 2012, that was, yeah, that was the real, real peak. I think Sauber, independent, kicking butt, really cool. Yeah, uh, James mentioned that the, the putative cadback takeover that that never happened, and that that was one of those bizarre moments in F1 history after BMW withdrew. And as with any distressed asset, it, it attracts rogues, shysters, vagabonds, and mountebanks. And one person who fits all those descriptions, and I can say that without troubling our legal department because he is a, cons- uh, a convicted fraudster, uh, Russell King who had been in and around the F1 paddock before and had screwed up Jensen Button's career royally before disappearing again and committing a fraud for which he was later convicted, uh, as well as buying uh, Nottingham Notts County Football Club for a pound or something and conning Svenjor and Eriksson into becoming the manager. You know, obviously this fellow was, you know, JBL called Sergio Perez a tyre whisperer. I'm not sure what sort of whispering Russell King got up to, but certainly a man with, with a smooth the forked tongue and uh, Formula One is all the better for him being sent on his way and Peter Sauber um, 
buying back into the the, the team he founded. Uh, and I suppose before we sign off, I, I should say that having having encountered Peter Sauber many times over the years, he's one of those people who um, speaks better English than he lets on, and he uses that as an excuse not to do interviews. Are you sure that's not a reflection of you, Codders? Um, probably. It was like, oh God, not him again. As well as sort of that always having a big cigar on the go, I, th- I think he's, he's basically one of those characters that have made formula one a, a, a richer place and it's it's a shame he's cashed out and, and gone into retirement and um the the tetra pack millionaires have, have come in in his place but at the same time he's, he's left the legacy of, of a team that has a very distinctive and unique character doesn't he absolutely codders i mean when you consider that motorsport has been banned in switzerland um since the le mans tragedy that I mentioned earlier um, it doesn't have the richest motorsport culture really so for a a Formula 1 team to have thrived for so long um, and of course not just in Formula 1 but um, you know we're we're now celebrating 50 years since Peter Sauber started his motorsport activities in 1950 is really remarkable. Switzerland's not exactly the the high watermark for for Formula 1 and you know, trying to attract staff to move there is also, you know, quite tricky when there's so many teams that are based within Motorsport Valley that, you know, if you're, um, you know, you're a budding engineer, you've got a, a seven out of 10 chance that, you know, that's where you're going to end up working. So to attract staff out to out to Hinville in Switzerland is, is, is a tricky task, but they've done an incredible job to, to keep it going. And um, you know, diversifying the, the current Sauber group into different elements. Obviously, the, the wind tunnel that um, it managed to construct for the for the fee it received for Kimi Raikkonen is um, not only used for, for Formula One, but it's used for um, private clients as well. Um, it, it's just it's brilliant that we're able to to sit here and talk about a, a company that effectively was was a hill climbing concern that. Um, did a little bit of sports car racing and that has just made such a fantastic success of itself uh, that that we're actually sitting here and, and marking its 50th anniversary. And all of that's down to Peter Sauber. And if you look at the drivers and they brought through as well, I mean, looking back, you had Carl Wendlinger, Heinz Harold Franzen, uh, you had Kimi Raikkonen, obviously, um, Sergio Perez, Kimi Kobayashi, Robert Kubica, Felipe Massa. All of these fantastic drivers... Oh, and Michael Schumacher. And Michael Schumacher, of course. Oh, a career because Peter Sauber just gave them a chance. Obviously, they didn't come in with a massive amount of funding. Um, and this little team that could in Switzerland said, OK, we'll waive that. And as long as you're good, then we'll give you a chance. And they were able to do these massive commercial deals outside that anyway. They brought Red Bull into the sport, Petronas, all of these massive companies bmw uh bmw deal um obviously getting sergio perez's vast array of mexican backers to keep the team afloat for a few years exactly so it's a team that has brought so much to formula one and we don't think about it so much because we sort of think of Sauber as this sort of stereotypically neutral team um, but it's done so much for Formula One, and it's it's great to see it sort of still live on as Alfa Romeo. And I think that idea of giving a chance and taking a chance, I think that's something in the cutthroat world of F1 is often overlooked and doesn't happen. But Sauber from day one have done that. And again, in my chat with uh, with Bayer, he said that he went to his first interview after seeing a little advert for. Um, Peter Salber, AG, needs a mechanic. So he went along to this interview and he got told about the plans with sports cars and racing and everything. And he, he said, well, I've got no interest in motorsport whatsoever. And the interview went on for about 10 minutes. And afterwards, Peter Salber said, Mr. Zender, like, I can't continue this chat with you if you don't like motorsport. Like, we, we can't do this. So he went away. And then a couple of weeks later, Bayat got on the phone again and, and said, look, Mr. Salber, like, I, I really would like to get involved. I, I can learn. I can get interested. And... and Peter Sauber gave him a chance and he said, OK, well, I'll, I'll give you a chance. I'll bring you on board. And Bayat, he said he knew so little that he found out the hard way that a brake disc gets really, really hot after being used and that he touched it and then he was left with these burns. And he said like it was it was things like that that he had to learn. Um, but finally, because it got bitten by the motorsport buck, meaning that 25 years later, he's still with that team and, and still serving as team manager. And I think it's it's things like that. It's just incredible that you've got this real sort of this 
plucky spirit that I think we we love about teams like like Williams that they sort of have gone through the ups and downs and still fought on. Uh, and Sauber, they've done it despite being from a country that, as, as James said, it has no real motorsport heritage. But Sauber has built one for Switzerland. And I think it, it's really incredible. And uh, yeah, it would be, it's unimaginable to think of a Formula One grid without some kind of Sauber team. And although it may not be there in name anymore, I think we all still think of that Alfa Romeo operation. It's, it's really Sauber. Sums it up. Beautifully. Thank you very much, Luke Smith. Thank you very much, JBL. Thank you very much, James Newbold from down the line in deepest, darkest Plymouth, where I presume you still have to get a sleeper train to get there. Don't unmute yourself. Enough of this nonsense. It's time for us to close off this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tolerating my whimsy. Uh, and I, I hope you enjoyed the sagacious contributions of, of my fellow contributors. Now, Online this week, as, as I mentioned, we are celebrating 50 years of Sauber in motor racing on autosport.com. Uh, there's plenty of content to enjoy. Uh, Gary Watkins delves into Sauber's collaboration with Mercedes in the 80s and 90s. I take a look at 2008 and all that with Robert Kubica. Uh, Luke, as he mentioned, has investigated the story behind the team's recent rebirth with new owners. Uh, that should be a rousing read uh, for anyone involved in Tetra Packs. Uh, there's JBL's tech analysis of the C20 uh, next week we've got Le Mans fever and among the many feversome Le Mans features uh, James has written about 1989 so thank you very much for listening the producer today was Martin Lee and no Kuros has been worn during the making of this programme Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.